Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Restful Bird Diner and Robot Overlord Mortuary. How may I bury you? Wait, what? No, I'm... Is there an Applebee's right around here? My GPS says... Let me begin by thanking you. When someone like you thinks ahead and comes to see us when you have two days left, there's so much more we can do. Me? No, no, I'm, I'm fine. I just have a, a lunch meeting at Applebee's. Of course you do. Now, I'm going to ask you to look right at these two red dots while I read this. I, random motorist looking for Applebee's, agree to have the remainder of my life force uploaded to a robot, after which my body will be stood upright in the back lot and eaten by condors. I understand the robot will not have my soul or personality, but will use my life force in furtherance of world domination. I signify agreement by saying I didn't get all that. I didn't get all that. We're all set. Do you need to use the bathroom? There's something wrong here. I'm all in favor of unconventional funerary practices, but not until I've had my Applebee's lunch combo. While I'm eating, the rest of you listen to this. And now his only request is to be buried with Stevie Nicks, Colin McEnroe. I don't really know how to broach that with her, but uh, but we will try to do that uh, at some point. Yes, we're going to be talking today about, well, let me put it this way. This is the thing I always come back to. Uh, when he was asked by 60 Minutes, uh, I think it was by uh, Mike Wallace, um, would you like to live on in the memories of your fans? Woody Allen said, no, I'd like to live on in my apartment. Um, and that's sort of how most of us feel about this. I think we'd like to live on in our apartments. We'd prefer not to die at all. Uh, and talking about all the other aspects that follow our deaths is just a way of circling back around to that whole issue of dying, which we're trying to avoid. So we're not good at this, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and we're not good at, at it, I think, in a way that ultimately creates more neurosis for us rather than less. And certainly reading uh, the book of our premier guest today, uh, I was – if I needed any convincing, I was convinced. Because I'm sort of one of those people too. I really don't want to deal with my death at all. But I've been a reading From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find a Good Death by Caitlin Doty. Caitlin Doty has been on the show many times before. Uh, she's a mortician, a death-positive activist. We'll explain about death-positive in just a second. Uh, founder of the Order of the Good Death, uh, creator of Ask a Mortician. We, I, we could be here all day. Uh, but the new book uh, is, as I said, From Here to Eternity, uh, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. She also runs Undertaking LA, a nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles. Welcome back to our show, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. This was the first public radio show I was ever on in 2011, and I thought it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. So I'm glad that we're still both here doing this right. in 2017. Right. As you say, we finally actually met uh, last year at uh, the TED Med conference uh, out in Palm Springs. So, um, so much to talk about here. But I think, first of all, as the title suggests, the, this book has a little bit of what's called Thano, or I would call it Thanato, Thanatos, Thanato tourism. I guess they call it Thano tourism. And maybe you could explain uh, what that is. Sure. Thanatourism is just 
the innate human desire to visit places of death and dying and destruction. And that's everything from Auschwitz and Ground Zero to cemeteries. And it's our belief that people are really interested in that, even if they couch it under just historical interest. They're still interested in where people die and where dead bodies are. And in traveling to look at these different death rituals around the world, I it was hard because I wanted to be a reporter and I wanted to be an advocate. But in many ways, I was also a tourist in in these different places that I had never been. And how do you draw that line? And I ended up cutting out a lot of the book where my editor was like, we don't need this much navel gazing <laughs> on on your role as a tourist. Like nobody needs to hear that. But it is a really fascinating question that you have to ask yourself when you're inserting yourself basically into these different culturals, different right. culture and different rituals. So, um, and before we go on, I want to uh, also just uh, remind people or tell people about something that they may or may not know. Uh, once every two weeks, ideally, uh, we do something we call Radio for the Deaf. Uh, it is a radio broadcast that we make available to the deaf audience. We do it by having two wonderful interpreters uh, in studio with me. They're here right now. They in- they're interpreting interpreting the show into American Sign Language. And you, particularly if you know somebody who could benefit from this, uh, obviously that person has to not be too squeamish about death on this particular day. But uh, anyway, if you know somebody who could benefit from this, we'd love for you to let them know about it. It's live right now on Facebook Live. It's on the Colin McEnroe Show page, Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook. You can see uh, an American Sign Language version uh, of everything that Caitlin and I and the other guests are talking about. So so to go back to your book, um, now... Yeah, I think you're on a different kind of quest maybe than some of these other people, people that you even kind of run into in some fairly obscure places. Can you describe what it was that you at least thought you were looking for as you went to some of these far-flung locales? Well, it started with the idea. So I wrote I wrote my first book a couple of years ago, and I got this sense from people who were commenting on it that – they really felt like people in other cultures, even though they were interested in other cultures, and even if you're liberal and open-minded, that other death rituals were gross or barbaric or disrespectful. And why don't you just let the corpses rest in peace? Why are you mummifying the corpses or leaving them out for vultures? Oh, I can't imagine. Um, and there was this lack of cultural relativism there, a lack of, of understanding that each culture really is trying to do the best it can for their dead. And beyond that, I think a lot of cultures, to be honest, are doing it better than we are here in the United States. And I wouldn't feel comfortable um, taking apart the death rituals of another culture. But since I am an American funeral director, I'm licensed here in America, I own a funeral home in America within the American death system, I feel comfortable saying... I don't know that we do it the best here in America. I, I think we have a lot of problems with the way our industry is run. And if I can go around the world, maybe we can take some inspiration from what other cultures have managed to do. Yeah. So we, we'll talk a little bit about how the industry works here in America. But first, let's kind of maybe give people uh, an example. And it might be one of the more exotic examples uh, of a place. I mean, Indonesia seems far enough away all by itself, but this is a place that's far away once you get to Indonesia. It's still kind of far away. Uh, Tell us about this place you visited and what they do there. 
Yeah, it certainly took a long time to get there, longer than I've ever traveled in my life, and because it was this very, very rural, mountainous area of South Sulawesi in Indonesia. And it's this rural, rural village or series of villages where after someone dies, they mummify the body. The old way that they used to do this was through teas and tannins, almost like tanning leather. And the way that they do it now is, is American-style embalmers formalin or formaldehyde injecting it into the body and they often keep the body in the home for weeks months even years and even after the burial takes place in these small house graves in the village every three years or so they remove the mummies unwrap them and redress them, clean them, update them on what's happening in the village, what babies have been born, when their daughter is coming to visit them. And they really don't see death as this end-all, be-all, the person's gone. They see death is a continuing relationship. And not only that, they see it through the dead body. You can say something to a mummified dead body, and that mummified dead body is is taking it in somehow. And it seems so, so different from what we do here in the U.S. But when you're there, it feels pretty normal. And it feels engaged, and it seems like a normal family. There just happens to be a bunch of mummified corpses around. Right. This is kind of an extension of I'm certainly my uh, Irish relatives, even going back just one generation. I mean, they would do this at least for the wake. They would take the corpse out of the casket, prop the corpse in a chair, sometimes place a drink in the corpse's hand, corpse's hand et cetera. I mean, this kind of notion of maybe continue keeping the party going a little bit longer uh, and, and not being terribly squeamish about the body. This obviously extends this a, a lot more. But it's very interesting because, I mean, you know, there's so many different ways to think about a dead body. But one of the things that, as you're saying, that they do is think about this dead body as not necessarily portending the absence of the person. They would still think of the person kind of in the present tense. They do. Yeah. And and what's interesting is, from my understanding, it's after the person dies by medical definition, they stop breathing. By their definition, they're not even really medically dead. They just have a high fever or they're very, very sick. And that's when you mummify them and you keep them in the home and you keep bringing them food and you keep cleaning them up and redressing them as the mummy slowly desiccates over time. And then when you raised enough money for a funeral, when you can sacrifice a buffalo or a pig, that's when the soul is really carried on to the next place. But even after that, they can still inhabit the body and you can still, you know, they were saying things like, hey, these people brought you some cigarettes when this was the the festival, when they're unwrapping the mummies. Hey, this person brought you some cigarettes or we're going to take a photo, a family photo with you now or your daughter's coming up from the capital city tomorrow. So they were still having these extended conversations. And what what people often say is, isn't that delayed grief? Aren't they never getting over the death because they bring these mummies out? I didn't get the sense that every day they were engaged in grief. This was their moment to have grief. It's like Dias de los Muertos in Mexico. This is their time of the year where they really get to openly express their grief for the because grief doesn't go away. And it, it goes on for, for people for a lifetime a lot of times. And we don't acknowledge that very well in the United States. I, you know, I totally get it, too. I mean, I'm 
an only child. Both of my parents are dead, um, being from, therefore, a very small family. There are a lot of things that happen, you know, these days where I have no one to talk to about them. In other words, somebody that we knew uh, does something or something happens that only my parents would really be able to relate to in quite the way that I did. And, and I'm always mentally on the verge of starting a conversation with them, and I realize they're not around. There is nobody to tell about this. So that notion that periodically I would sort of take them out, as it were, and talk to them. Uh, I, Caitlin, I, I totally understand that impulse. Yeah. And well, you want to gossip, too. Right. When you find out something kind of scandalous about mm-hmm. someone from your childhood, you're like, oh, I have to talk to my mom. And what's interesting, too, it's not even just the um, intellectual or emotional connection. People are also so interested in the physical remains as a funeral director and someone who's really open about talking about dead bodies and having these conversations. People ask me all the time. They'll say, my mother died 12 years ago in Hartford, and she's in this kind of grave, and what does her body look like now? And they really genuinely want right. me to describe what mom's body would look like. And for the most part, I can't give a good answer because there are so many different environmental factors that, you know, humidity and, and how sealed the body is and whether it was embalmed. So I can't give a perfect answer. But in this culture in Indonesia, they just bring mom right on out. And you can see her, and it's not a scandalous, salacious, like, oh, we're unwrapping a mummy. It's just unwrapping the mummy. There's mom. Hey, mom, how you doing? This is what you look like now. You're pretty well preserved still. And again, it, it it's not, it's taking some of the the morbidity or the, the macabreness out of it and just bringing it out into the sunlight and the light of day. So let's talk about uh, the way that we do do things in this country. Uh, reading your book, I, I became more and more convinced that we actually deprive ourselves of some of the comfort uh, that might be available. But before we even plunge into this, we have to find out what Seinfeld thinks about it. When you're moving, your whole world becomes boxes. That's all you think about is boxes. Where are there boxes? You just wander down the street going in and out of stores. Are there boxes here? Have you seen any boxes? You could be at a funeral. Everyone's mourning, crying around, you're looking at the casket. That's a nice box. Does anybody know where that guy got that box? When he's done with it, you think I could get that? It's got some nice handles on it. And that's what death is, really. It's the last big move of your life. The hearse is like the van. The pallbearers are your close friends. The only ones you could really ask to help you with a big move like that. And the casket is that great, perfect box you've been looking for your whole life. The only problem is once you find it, you're in it. All right. So um, it does seem as though, and one of the arguments that you make in your book, Caitlin, is that there are a lot of things that cultures used to do and American culture used to do that may strike us as, well, at least exciting kind of a squeamish response from, from us now. But, but they were sort of the opposite, right? Washing the body, dealing with the body, uh, all the things that we kind of hold at arm's length these days were and, and can still be, you say, kind of helpful to us as opposed to frightening. Yeah, we were incredibly self-sufficient in America. When someone died, they died at home. And you took care of their body at home. And then you built the 
coffin with your neighbors, and then you carried the dead person to the local graveyard. And it was a closed system. There was no outside professionals that came in and and took the body away. And that happened in the 20th century. So when we talk about the traditional funeral industry, I use that term because it it makes sense and it, it conjures up what I want it to conjure up. But it's not really an accurate term because it's not tradition. It's really just a 20th century business model that the that is the funeral industry. That is, let us take the body away and sanitize it in this somewhat unknown, mysterious way behind the scenes, and then present it back to you for a wake. And I think that some people want that, and that's that's wonderful. That's that's what the funeral industry is. It's completely available to you. But some people whether to save money or just to feel more involved and self-sufficient, want to go back to the old way. And it's completely available to them to do so. It seems, I mean, reading your book, and, and maybe we, I'm also surrounded by a bunch of people who aren't typical of most of America, but it seemed like the more that we wanted something, the harder it was to get. And I'll give some examples from the book. But we can, I, we can start with the, like the first thing you write about is this couple in Colorado who started this I mean, I, like I, I really can very easily be comfortable with the notion of my body ultimately being cremated, but I don't like that little conveyor belt thing going towards that little door and stuff like that. I mean, that that I don't like that idea. I don't like that image very much as being kind of the last image anybody has uh, of me. So explain what they've done out there. Yeah, you know what? I don't love it either. We offer cremations at my funeral home, and I hate that we have to bring the families back to a pretty industrial environment. Because in Los Angeles, where I where I cremate the dead, they have to they really put the crematories at the edge of town. They're often kind of industrial environments, and it's just not in the big machine with the natural gas and the brick-lined chamber. It's not what it could be. And what's so amazing about this small town in Colorado? is that this nonprofit, the Crestone End of Life Project, has basically taken power back into the community's hands for death care. And when someone dies, they come to your house, they help you prepare the body right there in the home. And then a couple days later, at dawn, they take your body out or you take your own dead body out in a procession to this beautiful open air cremation pyre under the 180 degree dome of the Colorado sky and you set the person alight and it's no it's not you know it's not grotesque there's no arm coming out it's pretty covered by the volunteers who know how to do this but the smoke swirls up towards the sky and you just feel like you are a part of something a transition of a human from from life to death and it's powerful in a way that I've never experienced at a modern industrial crematory so um, one of the things that you describe, it's, it's the, really the one that you were not able to visit and experience. It's, it's so funny because as we were talking about this uh, in a meeting, I think there were, were there five people in the meeting? I think there were five people in the meeting, whom, meeting room, uh, all producers and, and then me, and three of us really wanted this thing. And, and three of us had independently come to the conclusion that this is what we wanted. It's called a sky burial. You can only get it apparently in Tibet. Um, I'm going to let you take over and explain what a sky burial is. 
I want to talk to the other two. I love this idea of all these public radio producers talking about how they want their corpse torn apart at the end of life. I think that's great. Um, yeah, Sky Burial is really the first death ritual that I fell in love with because it resonated so much with me. And it's the idea, the the Buddhist idea that once you're you're done with your body, it's not useful to you anymore. So why don't you give it over to be useful elsewhere? And in this particular environment, high in the mountains of Tibet, how that works is they uh, cut up the body a little bit and put it out and vultures, big, huge, nine foot wingspan vultures come down and eat the body and take it back up to the sky. And that resonated with me so much because I don't eat animals now for the most part, but I have eaten a ton of animals throughout my life. And I believe they should have their turn with me when I die. And this is a a ritual that really gets to that. And I think it's such a immense contrast to our American funeral industry, which is let's take the body, let's chemically preserve it, let's put it in a big sealed metal casket, and then put that sealed metal casket in a concrete vault beneath the ground so not even a worm can get to my body. Nothing can get to my body. It's that sealed up. And the complete opposite of that is laid out to actually let nature consume you. And so I think that's the farthest away, really, from what we do in in America, and it's the one that most appeals to me. Right. Well, to us too. Uh, all right. So I've, I first read about it. I think it's the end. There's the uh, Don DeLillo novel. I think it's called Running Dog that ends with that, with one of the characters mm-hmm. dying that way. And the, and the first time I ever read about it in that novel, I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's that's the way to go. Uh, all right. Well, uh, it turns out we can't do it. Um, even if a lot of things change, we probably won't get to do that one. <laughs> yet, Colin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's time to dream. All right. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, we'll have a lot more of Caitlin uh, and some other guests that you're going to meet after this. And welcome back. Uh, we're talking about death and death practices and American attitudes towards death. Uh, we're doing that with Kate, Caitlin Doty, as we have in the past, mortician, death-positive activist, uh, and author of, among other things, From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. She also runs Undertaking LA, a nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles. Uh, you're about to meet another guest. Uh, that is Joanna Ebenstein who I forgot to click in during the break. There she is there. Uh, And uh, she's a designer, a founder of Morbid Anatomy and the author of Death, a Graveside Companion. But before we get to to Joanna, Caitlin, maybe we should define our term here because uh, we're using this term death positive. It also applies to Joanna's philosophy and her activities. activities. What do we mean by death positive? Yeah, well, I don't want to speak for Joanna, but I think that we both agree in our philosophy that an open conversation about death is needed. And not only an open conversation, but it's okay to delight in death because death encompasses history and anthropology and psychology and art and the very fabric of, of everyone's lives. So it's okay to be genuinely interested in death. Um, and with that in mind, let's add uh, Joanna Ebenstein to this conversation. Uh, welcome. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, tell us about your museum. It's in it's in Brooklyn. We associate Brooklyn with uh, artisanal pickling, but maybe not this guy. <laughs> well, uh, to bring it to death right away, sadly, the museum is no more. Oh, no. Uh, so the museum is rest in peace as of last December. Uh, but it was in Brooklyn, and we had a open to the public research library and changing exhibitions about different aspects of how we deal with mortality and also the kind of things that other museums couldn't or wouldn't deal with, so things that were kind of... Um, liminal or difficult subjects, I would say. Um, and, and so I mean, maybe you can also amplify your own attitudes to uh, amplify uh, Caitlin's uh, thoughts about uh, being death positive. Yeah, so I think I'm kind of an anomaly in the death positive community in that I'm not, I'm not really that interested in, in what people do today, but what my background is intellectual history and art. So what I'm really interested in is showing people objects and artifacts from the past and by showing them these things, um, kind of suggesting that our own contemporary attitudes towards death are by far the exception rather than the rule, and, and that they're culturally um, specific to our own time and place. And so trying to get people to think about death in a different way. And, and are you able, in that capacity, to identify, maybe both of you have thoughts of this, but I'll stay with you for a second here, Joanna. When these shifts happen, you know, in the first segment, Caitlin was talking about how, you know, in the past we were a lot more hands-on uh, and uh, and not so arm's length. Um, can you sort of pinpoint what caused the shift, or do you have, Joanna, a theory about that? Yeah, I do. And, you know, one thing I'd like to say when I'm speaking to people about this topic is this idea that we have of death being... Um, of denying death, which is what a lot of people say of our time, right, today we deny death. The fact that we even could deny death, I don't think could have ever existed in all of human history until now, so far as I can understand. And up, you know, through the 19th century, child mortality was quite high. They say three in five children died before reaching adulthood. People butchered their own animals. Life expectancy was much shorter, and people had horses. So death was much, much, uh, it wasn't exotic in other. It was just a part of everyday life. And I think you know, this idea that um, we, we have a sense today in, you know, I would, I would say today in kind of urban cultures, urban Western cultures of being so distanced from death, and I think it's a larger part of being distanced from nature. So I see that change kind of happening in the late 19th and early 20th century, and at this time, life expectancy grows, hygiene improves, um, surgical techniques improve, and also um, people start dying in the hospital instead of the home. There's kind of a shift and where it happens, bodies are no longer laid out. And I'm sure Caitlin already talked about this whole concept that as the funeral industry kind of comes in and the funeral parlor replaces the home parlor, they start to call the, the home parlor the living room. So this, this real shift from the idea of the dead having a place in the home to the, death having, uh, the dead having a place um, in some professional space off-site where things kind of happen quietly behind closed doors. You know, Caitlin, I was talking before the news about the fact that when my, my father died, uh, we as a family went to visit him in the in the funeral home uh, and the casket was open and there was just this little moment where we could say or do whatever we wanted to do. And my son was uh, eight, I think, at the time and far more innocent uh, than we were. And I mean, he wanted to throw a couple of put a couple of toys into the casket for his uh a grandfather to have, and he had written a little note that he, he tucked in there. But he was also looking at him, and of course, he, he had all been kind of prepared and made up, uh, and he was sort of saying, well, it just doesn't look like Bob. He called his grandfather Bob. And then he did this thing, which made us startle a little bit. He just took his finger and poked my father's face, which was a completely natural impulse for a little boy. But I suddenly realized, Caitlin, that I had all these pent 
up attitudes about dead bodies that was were some weird combination of both the sacrosanct and the profane that I, I saw it as a thing that you shouldn't touch. Uh, Caitlin, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Well, first of all, that's your exact experience is the experience that I hear over and over and over again. And I think you said it perfectly. You walked by the casket and you had this little moment mm. with him. And it doesn't need to be a little moment. You can have as much time. You know, he could have sat there if the body was at home, for instance, and mm. it hadn't been embalmed. He could have sat there poking grandpa's face until the cows came home and and really having that that kind of experience. And that's what I think is primarily missing from the modern funeral industry, is it shouldn't be a situation where you file past the casket and get one poke and then have to move on. That's your dead body. He was your dead body and you and you deserved as much time or engagement with him as you wanted or your son wanted. Right. And so I, I think you mentioned a place uh, I mean, Japan, which is very good, a, book, a culture that's very good at, among other things, putting things in skyscrapers with a lot of electronics and lights, uh, although they do this, they do, I think it was the Japan thing, Caitlin, where you really could have this, there was a room where you could stay there as long as you wanted. Yeah, they have, it's a corpse hotel. It's called Lastel, which literally means last hotel that you'll ever stay at. <laughs> and the idea is that you can, while you're waiting for the cremation to take place, at any time of day or night, you can come in and there's a room that the, the body just slides right in and it's casket and you can sit and take as much time as you want with the body. There's even a condo in there that family can come from out of town and all stay together with the body in the room. And I I wanted one. I was so jealous. I, I I wish we had one of those in major cities like New York and Los Angeles here in the U.S. So, Joanna, you know, another thing that I do remember from from those days when my father died was that when we went to the cemetery, um, there was a little sur- mini service around the casket. And then it was sort of over and people started to get into their cars. And my son said, well, aren't they going to put it in the ground and one of the people there, one of the undertakers said, well, most people don't like to see that. And Joe, my son said, I don't believe this. And so everybody left and he and I stayed and he got to kind of turn the crank or there was some kind of crank where you lower the, the thing in the ground that he wanted that. And I know, Joanna, you feel this way, too, that children and you as a child had this kind of natural fascination. Yeah, you know, I think it's really adults that are much more troubled by this than children. I think, you know, at least for me and for the kids that I knew, Death is just one of those things in the world that's fascinating and interesting, just like every, everything else. And so when I was a kid, I was very lucky in that um, I had parents who encouraged my outlook. And so my father, who I think secretly wanted a boy and not a girl, uh, bought formaldehyde for me. And so when I found, like, dead birds or, or when my pet lizard would die, he'd put them in formaldehyde. And so I had them all in my bedroom. And at the same time, you know, I think a lot of people think of that as macabre and grotesque and also maybe it suggests that I'm you know, a hater of animals or want to see them dead. But on the contrary, you know, like I was spending time, if I found a hurt baby bird, I would try to nurse it back to health. I was, I was very, very, I loved animals dead and I loved them alive. And I didn't see a disparity between those two things. All right. Um, we've got a call. Uh, I didn't even give out the phone number, but we've got a call from Michael and Wolcott. People do have questions about this kind of thing. Hi, Michael, you're on the air. I can't guarantee we can answer your question, but probably if anybody could, these two guests could. Excellent, excellent. Well, long-time listener, first-time caller, really enjoying the show. I'm calling because uh, it's kind of timely. My wife and I were just talking about um, preparations for end-of-life, things like that, and I was saying how 
seen anything, any funeral that I've ever been to just does not appeal to me. The cremation, uh, witnessing the body, you know, all these things, it just does not appeal. Mm-hmm. But I read about this woman who, who was wealthy and got buried in her Ferrari, her favorite Ferrari. And another gentleman who got buried in his favorite car, I forgot what kind of was. It wasn't anything super fantastic, but it was to him. And I said, how do I do that? That sounds interesting to me. Put me, you know, in my favorite car, put me in a suit, throw my guitar in the back seat, and lure me in the ground, and that sounds great to me. <laughs> well, um, so, Caitlin, uh, you operate out of Los Angeles, which is uh, full of, well, has a lot of people who do have um, means, as they say, and, and also not unknown for ex- eccentric- eccentricities. So uh, how about this car burial thing? Well, if you're in a place like Los Angeles, each burial plot, we're talking, you know, $12,000 to start in a lot of places. So the land is precious and expensive in a cemetery. But if you find a cemetery that would let you buy a couple plots in a row um, and there was some way to get a vault big enough to put around the car. I yeah, I think you should do it. I think you should dream big. You know, it might it might take a little while to figure out the logistics, but you sound young enough and you sound like you have a dream. And you know, I don't know, maybe if you didn't embalm your body, maybe it would still count as a natural burial if you're just decomposed inside your favorite car. I'm not sure about the about that, but um yeah, give it a try. Who knows? We're trying to push everything forward right. in, you know, the death revolution. So car burial is not on the top of my list, but I'm going to look into it. Maybe a little transmission fluid instead of embalming fluid. And, and Joanna, I mean, uh, all joking aside, one of the things that this uh, caller is talking about is, uh, I think, something that you're very familiar with, which is the notion that we, you know, uh, we all of us, I think, when we think about something as final as death and the disposal of our remains— you kind of wanted to reflect who you are. And I'm sure back when you had the museum, too, you, you could really sort of see the range of aesthetic ideas. And, and really, the system we have right now, it's not exactly one size fit, fits all, but it's very close to that. Yeah, and I think beyond that, too, you know, I think it's, it's, it's somehow attached to these former... I think they, I, I, my belief is that these kind of traditional funerals were probably quite meaningful at one time. But I think there's something that's changed in us today, and maybe it's because of, you know, our shifting beliefs that we're not, um, a lot of us don't believe in an afterlife or heaven and hell anymore, that they just don't speak anymore. So I saw my, grand, my grandparents' funerals, and they were both traditional, you know, a few words were said, blah, blah, blah. It didn't really do anything for me. It didn't help me process my grief. It didn't make me feel like a meaningful thing had happened. And, you know, one thing that I encountered, I had a job once to photograph the impromptu shrines that people are making in in kind of, uh, I would say, bad neighborhoods in Philadelphia. So basically kids um, who are dying early or adults who are dying early, and the families will commission a mural or a shrine in their honor. And thinking about these kind of vernacular ways in which people are coming up with their own ways of of commemorating uh, the passing of a loved one. I think there's a lot of room for for anything that's meaningful for, for someone. I think the old things did mean something once, but for many of us today, they just don't resonate any longer. You know, Kate, there's also been a way in which culture 
has depicted the kind of person who might be interested in or more comfortable with this as ghoulish. And I know that in your book, that's also a word that turns up even in uh, a travel book like Lonely Planet, actually warning people away from, from a locale that has an exotic burial practice and calling it ghoulish. But there's sort of a sense that this is the province of Tim Burton and Charles Adams and a bunch of sort of creepy, freaky people as opposed to just everybody. And maybe, Caitlin, you can say a little something about that, about how this whole thing has gotten defined a certain way. Yeah, and I think Joanna will have something to say about that too. But it's it's always interesting to me that I get simultaneously will get, wow, you look nothing like I would expect a funeral director to look. You're not an old guy in a suit. You're a young woman. That's And then at the same time, I get, oh, well, she has black bangs. Isn't she exactly what you would expect to be involved in death? And it's like, which one is it, people? Which one is the, Which one is true? And, you know, as Joanna was saying, death is for everyone. It's for every child. It's for every adult. It's for every Thano tourist. We all have this innate desire for death. And part of death positivity and part of Morbid Anatomy's work is to understand that and to welcome everyone in and say, you don't have to look a certain way or be a certain way. You're probably a human and you're thus interested in death by default. So come on in, be more comfortable with it, learn more about it. Joanna, were we ever culturally more comfortable with with death as a spectacle? I mean, now it's kind of like, you know, the joke of Harold and Maude is that, you know, Harold is is really, really interested in death in a way that most of us aren't comfortable with. And so there's something funny and comical about him. Was it a little bit more of a mass phenomenon at any part in our, at any time in our history? Yeah, I think actually every single time in our history except now is how I look at it. And that's part of what I'm trying to show in this new book as well. It's, it's all of these images from basically prehistory to contemporary times showing uh, different ways that we've imagined death in imagery and in artifacts over time. But I would say... When you look even at the 19th century, in the 19th century you could go to Paris and in all the guidebooks one of the things they would recommend going to is the Paris morgue. And this is where bodies would be laid out ostensibly to be identified, you know, bodies that were unclaimed. But it was a huge tourist attraction. Vendors would set up. They'd sell books. They'd sell snacks. People used to go to executions. Um, Medical museums were very popular even on the fairgrounds. So... This idea that death is not something we should look at or enjoy, as Caitlin was, was so rightly saying, you know, there is a fascination, an innate human fascination with death, and I think um, it doesn't go away. I would say it still does exist. It's just kind of been pushed down into into different kind of subcultural areas like film and video games and things like that. Well, yeah, that I mean, this, it sort of gets Joanna kind of ghettoized that way, though. It turns yeah. into, once again, this thing that's sort of freaky as opposed to, as Caitlin says, for everyone. And I think this thing that we should be ashamed of, and I think that's really, to me, that's the hardest part of it all. And so, you know, one thing that, that I wouldn't say radicalized me, but got me more interested in death was when my grandmother, uh, when she lost her husband, so they'd been together since they were 19, and she would say to me, you know, I'm ready to die. I just want to die, and there's no one I can tell that to except for you. And I just remember thinking, what kind of a world do we live in where just about the most important and meaningful and emotional sentiment you could share with another human has become taboo. And there's just something, I think, really, you know, dare I say morbid about a culture that demonizes uh, talking about the thing that makes us human, the thing that each of us is going to have to go through that every single person who's ever lived has done, and we will too. Uh, there's just something very perverse about it, I think. 
All right, we've been talking to Joanna Ebenstein, designer, founder of Morbid Anatomy, and author of Death, A Graveside Companion. We're going to take a break here. We'll have a more of Caitlin for a little while anyway. A lot of people calling up, uh, a lot of people having questions, not unusual. Don't get chances to talk about it very often. We'll have another guest that you'll meet on the other side of this break. I want to quickly remind you that uh, today we're doing this show in a format that we call Radio for the Deaf. It is uh, a form of radio that we try to create for a deaf audience. It involves having wonderful interpreters uh, in here in the studio with me who are translating everything into American Sign Language. That is available on a video stream on the Facebook page of The Colin McEnroe Show. So if you know anybody who could possibly benefit from that, let them know. I mean, it'll stay up there. It's live right now. The Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. All right, let's take a break and then we'll come back. From what I could see, lots of morphine coming through the ivy. I held her hand and it felt like snow. No pain, she said, then she seemed to know how to melt away, and it's time to go. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our intern, Sarah Bly. Amanda Fish will be buried at sea. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jonathan Winters. On tomorrow's show, Jim Chapdelaine's Ragnarokin' End of Time Holiday Special. And now, back to Colin. Some people, they, they want you to do things when they die with their, like, I want you to take my ashes and sprinkle them. you, I'm not doing none of that. You're dead, I'm not gonna run errands for you after you're dead. Some people try to do something, uh you know, noble with their bodies. They try to have their bodies have some use after they're dead, which I think is a good thought. If your body's worth anything when you're done with it, you should pass it on. That's something I really believe. I mean, I'm not gonna do it because I don't want you, it's mine. I don't want, I don't. But some people take their body. My grandma, she gave her body to a medical school, which is a good thought for that, but you know, they're her survivors, or her family. That was a person. That was my grandmother. She used to wear glasses and say things. <laughs> and now she's just shaved head on a metal table with a hungover medical student trying to dig out her pancreas. And, and he gets an F. All right. That was uh, Louis C.K. Might be the last time you can use a Louis C.K. Uh, clip for a while. Uh, we're talking about death and death practices with Caitlin Doty, mortician, death-positive activist, author most recently of From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. She also runs Undertaking L.A., a nonprofit funeral home in Los Angeles. We're going to also uh, talk now to Mark Harris, um, kind of apropos of one of the things that Louis C.K. was talking about in that clip, is that notion uh, of making some use of your body. Um, uh, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson said, I would request that my body in death be buried and not cremated so that the energy content contained within it gets returned to the earth so that flora and fauna can dine upon it just as I have dined upon flora and fauna in my lifetime. With that in mind, Mark Harris, former environmental journalist and adjunct uh, instructor at Moravian College, uh, wrote Grave Matters, a journey through the modern funeral industry to a natural way of burial. 
Israel. So both of our guests will have a lot to say about this. Uh, Mark Harris, welcome to our show. Yeah, nice to be here. Thanks, Colin. And uh, we had a we had a caller up on the board who I think hung up, but his his name was Eric, and he was asking that very same question: uh, What about just returning the elements of my body uh, back to nature, as opposed to as Caitlin described earlier, encasing it in wood and encasing the wood in concrete and embalming the body? So um, you wrote that book a few years ago. How's how's the movement towards a more green burial going? Uh, you know, I think it's going very well. I mean, when you look at the um, natural burial movement, such as it was when I first started, you know, we were looking at, what, a couple of natural cemeteries when I was doing my research back in the early 2000s, and now we're looking at 200 natural cemeteries. There's a growing uh, group of women, for the most part, who are traveling in the country giving workshops on how to care for our own deceased, like our forebears used to do. Um, there are more funeral homes that are offering green burial goods and services, uh, biodegradable caskets, refrigeration in lieu of embalming. And, I mean, you look at the surveys. So when I first wrote the book, you know, basically 20% of those surveyed by AARP said they liked the idea of a green burial. A uh, more recent survey a couple of years ago found that 65% of those who are 40 years and older uh, like the idea or are interested in green funeral options. That's a jump of 20% from uh, the same poll five years earlier. So I think uh, when I first started, this was an idea waiting to happen, and now it's happening. I mean, Mark, what are the problems or what are the barriers maybe to it is that it's I mean, I don't want to demonize funeral directors because there's a lot of very nice funeral directors in the world. Right. One of them's uh, <laughs> on my show today. But right. there, there, it's also a lucrative field, and it gets less lucrative if you're doing less to and with the body. Uh, that is true, and I think at least initially when I was going around speaking, uh, funeral directors were often in the crowd, and they were not happy with this emerging movement that was going to you know, uh, hit their bottom line. But I've since made the argument that many, at least anecdotally, I've found that many of the people who've come to Green Burial are ones who are looking at cremation. Um, and, you know, honestly, funeral directors don't make that much money on cremation as opposed to the full-blown modern affair with the casket and the embalming and the laying out and, and such. Uh, and I've made the argument, the economic argument, that Green Burial at least gets funeral directors back in the game where they can supply a green casket. They can have a body in refrigeration in their storage facilities. Um, they can engage uh, the family in some sort of service, sometimes in the funeral home itself. So I don't think necessarily green burial means a loss to the funeral director's bottom line. Certainly not as lucrative as the full-blown affair, but certainly better than cremation. Caitlin, I know you have to go pretty soon, so just very quickly. I mean, for people who aren't in a position to get torn apart by vultures or uh, go to Indonesia, this is, you know, this is something that it seems is a, a much simpler option, but very appealing to people. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see it right now. It is, and it it really is what we offer at my funeral home because we are not able to offer the vulture package. So we offer the green burial package, and we offer it out in Joshua Tree, which is the desert. It's it's wild. It's it's still as it was a hundred years ago. And for people in Southern California, especially that kind of desert landscape has this haunting appeal to them. So they really do feel like they're going back into the land that they're from. And it's it's really beautiful. Going out there is just a beautiful experience. We take the body out. It, it We hand carry it to the grave. We set it on some simple boards and then hand lower it into the grave. And the family can put the dirt and the sand back on to the body. And you just feel involved. 
And it's it's a powerful experience. So beyond the the financial savings, which are there in most cases, um, it's also just a powerful experience and and one that can bring us back to 100, 150 years ago. Um, Caitlin, I just got about 60 seconds left here, but very quickly. I mean, there just does still seem to be resistance to it. I mean, maybe you could do it in Joshua Tree. I don't think we've really gotten there in Connecticut. Why, why, why is it so hard to, to get adopted? I was just in Connecticut for about a week, and I believe that there are there is a green burial ground, or are there are people working on green burial grounds working in it, Connecticut, yeah. mm-hmm. um, which is very exciting. And um, there is resistance. I I think what Mark said is is absolutely right. But what's not talked about a lot is that we have a regulated system in the United States around burial and funeral homes that's regulated specifically to make. Tradition, quote unquote, traditional funerals with the embalming and the whole rigmarole, the only ones that can keep a funeral home open. And there's going to have to be a lot of regulation and deregulation and reckoning with the fact that there are these new things happening and not everyone wants that whole old package from the 1950s. And if we don't change how we regulate our funeral homes, how we allow funeral directors to practice, there are going to be some real problems with the funeral industry, even more so than there are now. All right. Uh, Caitlin, uh, we're going to let you go. Caitlin Doty, her new book is From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death. I found it a very healing experience to read it. So thanks. To, uh, great to have you back on the show today. We've got just a couple more minutes uh, left here with Mark Harris. So Mark, as you looked at this movement towards the Green Bear, and let me just say that there is a group called Connecticut Green Burial Grounds. There's, I think they're trying to raise money right now to have a place, uh, a place in the woods where, where you could do this and have a tree grow right on top of your grave and, and all that kind of stuff. But they're not there yet. Who were the movers and shakers? Who were the people who drove the movement in its early stages? Oh, wow. Well, it depends on how far you go back. I mean, you know, certainly we've been burying people green for from time immemorial, so we're returning to a tradition. So the tradition has always been there. I'd say the more modern manifestation of this uh, happened, say, with the start of Ramsey Creek Preserve, the first national cemetery, modern national cemetery in the United States, which opened in 1998. And uh, so Billy Campbell and his wife, Kimberly Campbell, are certainly among the movers and shakers on on that front, um, Beth Knox, who is a home funeral guide, who's been doing this for 20 years or so, going out and traveling the country and giving workshops, including one I went to, in which he shows participants how to wash and dress the body and lay it out for a home viewing, just like our forebears did. I mean, she's among the movement. So uh, that's kind of the uh, the baby boomer edge of it. But now we're getting younger, a younger generation of folks who are uh, initiating ideas like, uh, you know, compostoriums, where bodies would be conjoined together and then uh, uh, decompose sort of as one. And we've got more artistic visions of burying our bodies in these uh, paper mache um, uh, arts, uh, artworks. Uh, so, you know, they are, uh, and then certainly there are people like Caitlin who are traveling around. I mean, she's got her books and she's very active on social media. She's giving talks. Uh, so I think that's where a lot of the interest is. Absolutely. Mark Harris, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, Mark Harris, uh, author uh, of a book on this movement, on this movement towards the green burial. Grave Matters, a journey through the modern funeral industry to a natural way of burial. Thanks to everybody, including our wonderful American Sign Language interpreters. We'll be back tomorrow for Ragnarok. Don't you bury me.
gosh, that casket they put David in, it's huge, like the size of a school bus. <clears throat> we welcome you to the funeral services for David. Today we celebrate his life and mourn the loss of his battle with claustrophobia.